Afternoon, everybody. Nice to see you. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you will uh, realize that this is um, part three, the, the final part of a series that I've called Hashtag Table Talk. Um, I've used it as a handle on social media. I sound like I might be a millennial. Excellent news. Um, I'm kind of sad that it's coming to an end, but I'm also really excited because, as you might remember if you were here, my goal was not to tell you what to do. My goal was to encourage what I've called a community conversation about the table, about your table, the table that sits in your house, in your home. A conversation that says, what would we do with it? What could we do with it? And you might remember if you were here, and if not, I'll just give you a quick recap. In the first week, I talked about the table and family. The table is a place where we can find out who we are, where we can make friends, where we can strengthen family and strengthen community. I talked about the table as, as a physical object, but also as a metaphor for a place and a space that you and I can create and invite other people into it. We did a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of the Bible, the significance of the table in the narrative of the Bible. We talked about how Jesus used the table. It's said that thousands of people have left the building, metaphorically, the church. I saw a quote the other day that millennials are leaving the church in their droves, and I replied saying, actually, I'm Generation X, and most of my contemporaries have left the building too. And I believe passionately that one of the reasons for that is because the church has replaced the table with the platform. And as a result, the quality of our lives is diminished. Now, as I've said repeatedly, and I will say it again today, I am not advocating burning the platform it's most inconvenient, I'm standing on it right now. What I am saying is, what would it look like for you and I to make room for the table alongside the platform? The capacity of the collective tables represented here and the surface area of the tables represented here is way greater than the surface area and the capacity of this platform on which I'm standing. And if we could leverage it to build family and community, what would that look like? Last week, I talked about the Lord's table, depending on which stream you swim in or which tradition you are from, that you might know that as the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, breaking bread, or communion. And I talked to us about the Lord's table as being the cornerstone of community for four reasons. One, because it causes us to remember him. The fact he lived, the fact he died, the fact he rose again, but also the reality that says one day he is coming again. It also causes us to remember him in the sense that he is today in heaven praying for you and me. And also to remember him in the sense that he lives in you and he lives in me. And also to remember him in the sense that everything that Christ purchased for us through the cross is available to us now. And that makes it sacramental. When we break bread and we drink wine, we have the potential to access 
the reality of what he purchased for us 2,000 years ago. That should, that's exciting. We're also reaffirming our identity. Augustine in the third century said, you are what you eat. That wasn't a concept invented in the 21st century. He coined it in 300 AD when he said, when you take the bread and the wine, you are partaking in the body of Christ, but you are the body of Christ. So we are reminded we are not some lifestyle club. Vine life isn't a place you join to get happy because the music makes you feel good. We are the church, and the church is fundamentally, genetically different to a club and a lifestyle choice and a special interest group. And when we take communion, we're reminded of that fact in the present ongoing sense. The Lord's table is also a place where we get to reflect. It's the place where Jesus invites us to take responsibility for our stuff. So you might remember last week I mentioned that the Lord's table is the place where all of a sudden I'm invited to take my eye off the the splinter in the other person's eye and focus on the plank in my own. That makes it a hugely significant place of personal transformation where I face up to the reality of my stuff, but I'm invited to participate in what the cross purchased for me in order to be able to deal with it. So it's not that I am having my nose, my face wiped in it. It's a, I take responsibility and then I access all of the cross purchase for me. And then fourthly, we get to renew our commitment. Renew our commitment to him and renew our commitment to one another. United with Christ for our strength and united to one another in community. It is, after all, a covenant meal. I just wanted to make two asides that I've gathered as we've gone over the last few weeks because it's created a conversation, and thank you, thank, thanks to you for having that conversation with me in some cases. I'm conscious that when I talk about family and I talk about gathering around the table as family, that image is not an image that is necessarily a blessing to, any of you, to some of you. It's not good. It doesn't conjure up great memories. And some of you who know my story know this, but, but I grew up in a, in a very violent home. And so one of my images of, of our kitchen table is watching my, my mum pick up a bread knife and point it at my dad. And I thought, I literally in that moment thought, is she going to do something with that knife? I say that to you because... With all of my heart, I would want you to understand, I understand that pain. I do understand what that feels like. But with all of my heart, I would want you to be able to believe that when you meet Jesus, you meet someone who has the potential, you can partner with him to build into your life what was not there before. So when I met Jesus at 17... Somehow I kind of twigged that there was an opportunity for me to build my life in a way that was not a reflection of my past. My social worker said to me as we walked out of the rubble of a broken home, don't let this define you, he said. Don't let this define you. And as I was moving away from the negative and I encountered Jesus, I was embracing the positive sense of I can let someone else define me now, and that's Jesus. And Jesus has been so good to me because he has given me the opportunity to build a marriage and a family 
that is night and day different from the one I experienced. So I say that to you to give you hope. That even when I talk about the table and family, and if it does bad things to you, that you could find a way to believe that Jesus can change your future in a way that means you're not defined by your past. And the second thing I wanted to say is that you may sit there and think, I haven't got a lot to give. I don't even have a table. And I just want to say this to you. Sarah, at the end of the first week, prayed something, and it just blew me away. She prayed this prayer, and she said, help us to understand that we all have something to gain, but we all have something to give when it comes to the table. And with all of my heart, I want you to know that too. However small your table, even if it doesn't exist today, you have the potential to create a place and a space in your life and invent other people into it and for it to be life-changing for them and for you. Today I want to talk about the table as a means of extending the kingdom. How would we expand the envelope of what we enjoy today as community and embrace others into the culture that we enjoy? And as I promised you right on on week one, I thought, Lord, I can't change my message now because on week one I promised everybody we're going to go and sit at the table of David with Mephibosheth. We're going to go and sit at the table um, of um, Solomon with the Queen of Sheba. That's an ultimate grander affair. And then we're going to sit at the table of Zacchaeus with Jesus. So I've got to do, I feel like I need to do what I said I was going to do. But let's just drop in on Jesus for a second. Three, Three very short passages. Matthew 9 verses 10 to 11 says this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mark 14 verse 3, while Jesus was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it over his head. Luke 7.36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Why do I share those verses? I share them with you because they reverse the polarity of mission in my mind. You know, Jesus said, go... So there's that sense of outward movement. In these verses, Go looked like inviting himself into the home of some really interesting people. Tax collectors, a leper, and a Pharisee. So much of church today is is associated with platform, and our mission has been turned into, how do we get everybody to come and sit in our auditoriums? and listen to what's being said from a platform. I'm not saying that's wrong. You know me well enough to know it can be both and. But what I am saying is that I believe we have shrunk the table to such a size it almost doesn't exist anymore and expanded our platforms to the point where they become the only thing we think about. And yet I look at Jesus' mission, and he's hanging out with people, sitting at the table, eating. Very interesting characters. So I think we have something to learn from him, and we're going to end up with him in Zacchaeus' house very shortly. But if you've got your Bibles with you, and you want to turn to it, or you can click to it on your Bible app, 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1, I want to read to you the story of Mephibosheth. 
David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there anyone, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machia, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had brought him from Lodabar through the house of Machia, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will show, surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, and Jonathan was Saul's son. And Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle on the same day. At that point in time, Mephibosheth was five years old. His nanny picked him up and ran for his life and her life. And in the process, she dropped him. And the Bible says he became crippled in both feet and wasn't able to walk. His name means out of the mouth of shame. I wonder what it feels like to be called out of the mouth of shame. And then to be dropped by the person who's caring for you and crippled so that you can't walk. David inspires me because at the point in the story that we just read, the kingdom under David has expanded and pretty much David is now at the height of his reign. He has everything. And in the process of realizing he has everything, he realizes he doesn't have everything. And in the moment of prosperity and celebration, he decides to inquire as to whether there's anybody left. Is there anybody left of Jonathan and Saul's family that I can show kindness to? He's sitting at his table and he's thinking, someone is missing. Someone is missing. There is a place for someone at my table. Who is it? 
And it's a sad story at some level, but it's a beautiful story at another level because David provokes me to think there's someone missing from my table. God, you have blessed me. I have built a family and a marriage and trust me, that is not a DIY job. That is the grace of God on my life from where I started from. But there's still room at my table. There's still room at your table for someone. And I wonder who the Mephibosheths are in your life. You see, the the beautiful thing that happened, the Bible tells us, is that Mephibosheth got to sit at David's table. And in the process, he learned to assume an identity as one of the king's sons. The table is a place of adoption. It's a place where someone can sit and work out who they are. They can realize there is someone who can give them an identity. It's a place where they can find family. Psalm 68 says that God sets the lonely into families. I wonder if we could translate that. God invites people to sit around a table and find out who they really, really are. To invite someone to sit at your table and for me to invite somebody to sit at my table is to invite them into my life, to offer friendship to them, to extend family to them. But it's also a a hugely missional and supernatural place where we can extend the kingdom and the culture that we live in to someone else who doesn't know him, who doesn't understand that culture. I'm sure many of you have had the experience, Sarah and I have had it many times, where you invite somebody to sit at the table and they would say things like, it just, I feel different. There's something different about this place and space. And what they're experiencing is that they're encountering a different culture, a different kingdom, and they get to participate in it because of an invitation So when we sit at the table of David and we look across and we see Mephibosheth, we are invited to think, to be grateful for all we have, to celebrate everything we have as individuals and the community, but to ask ourselves the question, who's missing? Who's missing that we could invite to come and sit at our table? Okay, let's go and sit at Solomon's table and sit there with the Queen of Sheba. 1 Kings 10, verses 1 to 5. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with her hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, which always conjures up a very strange image in my mind, I have to say. Um, With camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all the things she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. 
When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. Some translations said the breath was taken out of her. She was absolutely stunned by his wisdom. So what, what do we learn by sitting at the Solomon's table with the Queen of Sheba? Fundamentally, I think we learn this, that we learn far more from dialogue than monologue. The problem with this relationship is it's monologue. Everyone's listening to one voice. Although I do like it when you speak back to me, to be fair. But I would suggest that we learn far more from dialogue than we do from monologue, which is why my goal in this series was to create a conversation, not to tell you what to do. Because it's, the, it's in the conversation often that we frame the right questions and then we find the right answers. Yes, Solomon was a wise guy, but he was wise enough to get everybody around a table. <laughs> I believe the search for wisdom often leads us to the table. It's where the Queen of Sheba ended up with all of her difficult questions. She didn't just listen to Solomon's podcast or read his book. And I'm not now suggesting we burn podcasts and books, right? You're going to think I'm a right Luddite. But she understood something. I need to go and meet this person and speak to this person and see what this person's about. And maybe that's where I'm going to find my, my answers. I think the reason why we struggle with complexity is because it's very easy to make it simple from a platform. You wrestle with things in dialogue that you never have to do here. You nobody's asking me hard questions here, right? That's please don't. <laughs> this is a really safe place for me because nobody's asking me hard questions. When we get into around a table and we get into dialogue, we start to wrestle with things that we don't wrestle with in this space. When you're sitting at a table, you stop swapping sound bites and you start swapping stories. We've made some really great new friends this weekend, and we stayed up till one o'clock on Saturday night, which for me is like a life-changing experience in its own right, yeah? I'm at that age and stage now where I can still do it, it just takes me longer to recover. Um, why did we stay up so late talking? Because we were swapping stories. We weren't trading sound bites. Most of us today, I, I have a concern that we kind of, our life is lived by trading sound bites. You know, Twitter extended the number of characters we could use. Hallelujah for that. I couldn't say anything on Twitter for a long time. <laughs> I can't say it in that short space of time. I need more space. Um, but he, however long your sound bite is, it's not the whole story. The table is a place where we can take a sentence and put it in the context of a paragraph, in the context of a page, in the context of a chapter, in the context of a whole book. And wisdom is found in the narrative, not the sound bite. What would it look like to stop devouring ourselves with sound bites and start developing ourselves with stories? The place to do that, I suggest, one of the places we can do that is the table. It's a brilliant place to tell stories. The narrative of our family is etched into all of those meals where we told each other 
stories. So we sit at the table of Solomon and we're impressed by the food, the wine, the layout. But more than anything else, we leave that table thinking the search for wisdom should often lead us to a table. And now we find ourselves at Zacchaeus' house with Jesus, Luke chapter 19. I think Jesus understood and modeled the fact that to find yourself around a table is to find yourself in one of the most transformational places on the planet. Let's read. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So the first thing is he wasn't planning on going to Zacchaeus' house at all. According to the Bible, he was on his way through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So being a tax collector made you kind of unpopular. Being the chief tax collector kind of probably put you into the off-the-charts category of unpopular, right? Because you were wealthy and you were basically stealing everybody else's money. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short... He couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Can I just say something at this point, just a personal reflection? The thing the Bible doesn't record is what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. This conversation is off the record, which I think is fascinating. But it does tell you what species the tree was that he climbed. And I said, Lord, what is that about? I'm not really bothered the fact it was a sycamore fig tree. I want to know what he said. And I didn't get any, I got silence back, so I can't tell you anything about that. What it does allow me to do, though, is make it up. Is that, yes? If that's okay around here, I can make up what that story, that, that conversation was about. But it's good to know it was a sycamore fig tree. I'm sure there's prophetic people out there who have already got six reasons why that matters. You can come and talk to me later. Um, Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. You love a good mutter, don't you? Mutter, 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 mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Beautiful story. So I don't know whether they sat at a table, okay? I don't know. I'm going to say they did. And you can't argue with me because the Bible doesn't say they didn't, right? So let's just agree to disagree if we're going to, if we're going to disagree. What I'm going to say is that Jesus invited himself into a place and a space called Zacchaeus' house. And in the process, he did three amazing things. The first thing that Zacchaeus did was he gave Zacchaeus the gift of being seen. Jesus, it says Jesus looked up and he saw Zacchaeus. He could have carried on straight through Jericho and not seen Zacchaeus, but it says Jesus on his journey looked up. One of the most remarkable things that someone has ever said to Sarah and I in a church community is, I just want to thank you because you see us. 
when she said that to me, I had no idea what she was really talking about. I had to really, you see me. And I suddenly realized how precious a gift to that person being seen was. And Jesus gave Zacchaeus the gift of being seen. I think to seek starts with to see. Jesus was seeking and he saw Zacchaeus. We were all born to be noticed. It always makes me um, wonder, you know when children get accused of like attention-seeking behavior as if something how that's wrong. Now don't forget, I've raised three kids and I've got five grandkids, right? So I understand the challenge of what I'm about to say, but somehow children are wired for attention because they were created for it. We were all born to be seen. Maybe when their attention-seeking behavior kind of manifests itself in not such a great way, that represents something of a deficit that says, how do I meet that need so that it doesn't express itself in a bad way? The point I'm making is we're all born to be seen, and the gift of being seen is one of the most precious gifts you and I can give anybody. The second thing Jesus did with Zacchaeus is he gave him the gift of acceptance. He said, I'm coming to your house for dinner. In that culture, that was basically saying, I want to be your friend. And it's why the crowd muttered, because they understood the significance of this invitation was, he's just, Jesus isn't just hungry and needs feeding. He's, he's sending a, a signal to Zacchaeus, says, I accept you. By the way, I think the kids preached this message way better than me before I got up. I accept you. We were all created to belong. We were created to be seen. We were created to belong. And Jesus on his journey gives Zacchaeus the gift of acceptance. And then the third and final thing I believe that Jesus gives Zacchaeus is the gift of being present. The thing about the table is it's a place and a space where we can choose to be fully present. All of us fully present if we switch our phones off or put our iPads away. Being fully present, I am, I'm sure I don't understand this fully, but I do know that being fully present is one of the most incredible gifts we can give anyone. And Jesus gave it to Zacchaeus. And the beautiful thing about this story is it tells you the power of being seen, accepted, and being fully present with somebody changed Zacchaeus' life to the point where he was giving all the money that he had stolen away. And he wanted to repay the debt in so many ways. And it was all flowing from a conversation with Jesus where he had been seen, accepted, and known. The problem with the platform is it's a place where the few get seen and heard by the many. The table is a place where we all get to be seen, heard, and known by each other. That's why the table matters so much alongside the platform. The platform is where the few get celebrated. The table is where we all get accepted. The platform is the place where we are preached to. It's monologue. The table is the place where we get to be present with each other. This isn't a bad place, but this platform is not the whole story. And my invitation to you as I close is to ask yourself the question, is mission really about seeing people? Is it about accepting people? Is it about being fully present with people? Is mission about 
inviting people to sit around our tables and not just to attend our meetings. We're about to celebrate our birthday next week as a church, and that's brilliant. Celebrate our family life together. But I wonder what next year's celebration would look like if between now and then we took our tables and we opened them up and we thought to ourselves, who is it that I could invite to come and sit around my table before we invite them to this auditorium? And I wonder how many more people would be in the picture. How many more Mephibosheths, Queens of Sheba, Zacchaeuses would be in the room simply because we did something different with our table. I'm going to finish with a poem by a lady called Anne Voskamp. She's a writer. She wrote a brilliant book. And she says this about the table. She posted it this week. Home may be the most powerful word we know, so it matters eternally how we make our homes. And it turns out all our homes tell a story What if we could make our homes into holy places and make our holy places into welcoming homes and make tables into altars and make altars into tables because he who is our bread invites us all to be a celebrating and banqueting people who make space at tables, break bread at tables, recognize him at tables, feast till the very end of time at tables and invite more to the table. Today, let's lay out our welcome mats. Let's set the tables. Make the tables long so more people will know where they belong. Tear down the gates and lay more out plates. Today let your home tell a story of grace. Grace given, grace received, grace passed forward, and grace given again. Thank you.